HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org donate and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host this evening, Leah Kurtz, and joining us over the phone are chefs John Currents and Vish Bhatt. John is a James Beard award-winning American chef based in Oxford, Mississippi. He is a New Orleans native and the owner of restaurants City Grocery, Bure, Big Bad Breakfast, um, both that's uh, in Mississippi, Florida, and Alabama, and Snack Bar. Um, chef Vish is the executive chef at Snack Bar in Oxford, Mississippi, um, which he opened with Chef Currents in 2009. And born in Gujarat, India, Chef Vish has garnered acclaim in the U.S. as an innovative chef for imparting Indian spices and flavors in traditional Southern cuisine. Welcome to the show, chefs. Thank you. 
It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on here. And um, just to get started, can each of you just share um, just a little bit about your background and how you both got started in the culinary world and then how you met and began collaborating? Who, do you, who do you, would you like to go first? Oh, um, uh, Chef Currents, if you want to go first. Okay. Um, mine, you could argue, was like the process of elimination. I had really sort of flunked out of everything else in the, in the world that I could possibly do, and I just sort of defaulted in the kitchen. I, I, I think, you know, like uh, like uh, like Vish, you know, we we both were fascinated, you know, with kitchens and uh, by the activity and the creativity. Um, and you know, I literally, you know, just fell into it sort of by mistake. It, it, it combined all of the things that I was passionate about. Um, and so working in restaurants just came very naturally. And, uh, I think, you know, I was fortunate because, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a young cook, uh, you know, I just happened into, you know, a number of jobs working for extraordinarily talented uh, and driven chefs that uh, that that were my you know sort of early mentors and introduced me to other folks, um, you know who were equally influential. Um, so mine is just you know I, I just call it you know completely dumb luck that uh, that I fell into it. Hmm. And how about you, Vish? Uh, that story is almost uh, very similar. Um, I you know learned how to cook a little bit from my mom. Uh, and you know, been watching her and my grandmother, and uh, started cooking in college uh, because the cafeteria food was expensive and not very good. Um, and then sort of fell into you know needed beer money, and uh, <laughs> so you know the only job that I could get uh, as an international student uh, that allowed me to work you know at, at hours that I could work when I was not in school was in a restaurant. So you know just that's. How I got into it, and uh, cooking and eating had always been something that I really enjoyed, and so that just uh, sort of kept uh, growing, and then here we are. Yeah, where where our stories differ is that like fish, you know, has has actually become insane talent in spite of any influence that I might have forced upon him, you know, in his time in our kitchen. So that's that's, that's what makes him a kitchen superhero. <laughs> and and how did you both meet? <laughs> uh, I, I ran up an enormous bar tab at uh, at the bar at City Grocery, and John had to come and talk to me about, hey man, it's time to pay. Vish <laughs> was a uh, became arguably sort of our our first regular in the restaurant. He uh, would would come eat regularly, um, and when I say regularly, I mean a couple nights a week, um, and it was very clear. Um, you know that uh, that he had a tremendous passion, you know, sort of for whatever it is that that we were doing. Um, and what you know, sort of always struck me as you know one of Fish's defining characters is, characteristics is you know he is one of the most thoughtful people that I've ever known in my entire life. And regularly after having had dinner, he would come by the kitchen the next day with a bottle of scotch or a bottle of champagne, or um, you know he. He knew my uh, favorite ice cream flavor at, at Baskin and Robbins would bring a quart of chocolate peanut butter ice cream, uh, you know, by the kitchen just as a, you know, thanks, um, and, uh, you know, and a tip of the hat, which uh, was lovely. So it made it very easy, you know, to, uh, 
um, to when he ran up that bar tab, offer him a job, you know, in order to work that bar tab off, <laughs> rather than threaten him with legal action. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, a beautiful friendship forged over lots of good food and it has been, yeah. good drink. Sounds like too. Absolutely. Um, so just to backtrack a little bit, um, Vish, like you, so you immigrated to the U.S. when you were 17, correct, with your family? Uh, I was 18 you were and 18. a half. Okay. Okay. And you first um, arrived in Texas, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Austin, Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. Um, and so at that point, kind of what, what was it like to come to the U.S.? Was that your first trip here and kind of get immersed in, in the culture and and especially in Austin, which is like a, you know, a well-known food town. Yeah, well, I don't know if Austin was a food town back then. I, I, that I don't know. Uh, technically, it was not my first trip. My, my parents brought me here. My, my dad was working uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and they brought me here when I was 10 months old, and, and we were here till I was three years old. So I had spent some time. I clearly didn't remember any of it. Uh, but, you know, as, as somebody... You know, who was grown up and, and could remember things and, and go out and do on things on my own. Yes, Austin was my uh, first exposure to to America. And then you spent a little bit of time um, in was it in France with your family as well? Yes. Yeah, so so the the way it went is uh, I finished high school uh, and was sort of being a bum, uh, you know, as they say, you know, uh, having a gap year. Uh, and while that was going on, my father had been asked to come uh, work at a research lab in France. And so my mom and dad went, and then my sister and I followed. And we spent uh, 11 months in, in Strasbourg in, in eastern France. Uh, I was still, you know, uh, I guess gapping or <laughs> not doing anything except uh, wandering uh, the country and just seeing things and, you know, just having a grand time, and, and then uh, that got the job in Austin, and we moved to the U.S. And were you um, uh, kind of surprised by the, you know, by the food and by the culture, or did it, did you kind of sink into it immediately and um, kind of find your place? No, I mean, it took a little while. I mean, I, some of it was familiar. I mean, some, you know, uh, the, the, the climate in, in Austin at the time we got there was September and it was warm and that was familiar and Austin was you know that part of Austin's a little little dry and you know kind of in, in my mind at that time looked dusty so it was similar to my hometown uh, at least uh, I mean uh, yeah so, so some of that was familiar also the great thing you know that that really helped was you know when the first trip we took to a a grocery store, a supermarket, uh, seeing things in the produce aisle that I recognized, uh, things like peppers and okra and uh, tomatoes and, and greens, and you know, and, and then and, uh, piles of uh, dried beans, you know, black-eyed peas and such things. So there was some, you know, and then there was also like pre-made tortillas, and I, you know, I didn't know, and that's what they were called, but I, I knew what to do with them. Uh, so that that part was a little bit easy, and then of course having my parents around uh, made it a lot easier. I mean, if, if I'd come as some other students, uh, you know, that are young and then show up for the first time, it might have, might have been a little more difficult. Mm. 
And then when you when you decided to um, you know get into the culinary world professionally, um, what was that kind of like to go from you know having kind of grown up and learned to cook in your mother's kitchen to then entering the professional space, um, you know, a space that is kind of stereotypically very um, Eurocentric and masculine. Like how um, how was that for you as you went through that? Uh, well, the masculine part wasn't much of a problem because, you know, as, as you know, as Indians, we can be very chauvinistic, <laughs> you know, obnoxious. <laughs> uh, so that, that part, uh, you know, not so much of a problem. The, the kitchen part was a little different. I mean, the biggest difference was you know, there was a lot of meat and fish and something I had never eaten or never learned to cook. So, you know, uh, it, it, there was... You know, I I could deal with the vegetables and I knew what to do with them and I I you know I knew how to cook the the rice and beans but you know then you put a big you know uh, a hunk of beef in front of me and I have no idea what to do with it uh, you know so that that was a learning process seafood especially because I had never really worked with any fish um, you know I'd seen it on a plate but that was about it so I didn't know where to start. Uh, and so that was, you know, I, I learned a lot of that um, uh, from, you know, uh, from John and, and from the guys who were in the kitchen who were prepping, who were, you know, uh, running the show. And they were really nice to me and really patient with me in the beginning. So it, it, it came along. Uh, I, uh, the cooking part, some of the basic cooking part, I felt comfortable with. Um, and then, you know, the, I had some really nice people sort of uh, hold my hand and, and uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, walk me through everything. Hmm. So you had never cooked um, meat before? Uh, well, not not in a professional kitchen, no. Right, I mean, right. I sort of experimented in my house, you know, tried to make a chicken curry or, you know, tried to, you know, I tried to uh, roast a chicken once and forgot it was in the oven because <laughs> uh, we were all having a good time and, and drinking and, you know, thing on fire, you know, that sort of stuff. But no, I mean, you know, the, the concept of a big chunk of meat on a plate is, is you know, was very foreign. I, you know, in India, you don't eat meat like that. It's, it's in something, and then you have a lot of other things that come with it. And so that's how, you know, when I did start, you know, eating meat a little bit at a time, that's what I knew. Or in Europe, when I first had some stuff, it was in something. I was in a sauce or it was, you know, uh, a pasta with the bolognese or something like that. So I'd never really seen just like, well, here's, you know, 12 ounces of uh, ribeye on a plate. I, I didn't know what to do with it. Mm. And since you've, since you've been um, kind of working in Southern cuisine and bringing your own, you know, kind of... Uh, approach to it how have you kind of fused the two you're known for kind of bringing and imparting um more traditional uh indian spices and flavors and perhaps like do you feel like you you know bring the vegetables out and bring them forward in you know in the dishes and in the menus that you create uh i mean it's a lot of it initially wasn't uh intentional a lot of it was uh, you know, this is what I know, uh, and this is what, you know, I think cauliflower should taste like because this is how, uh, you know, that's how I grew up eating it. Or I like my potatoes with cumin and black pepper because that's how mom made them. And so I would do that, 
and John was <laughs> really kind enough to let me do that. And he was like, okay, you know, uh, we, we can work with that. Uh, and so that, you know, a lot of it just, I, I, I did it because that's what I knew. I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know what else uh, to do. So that's how it went. That's how it initially started. And then it just, you know, started flowing and then, you know, people started liking it and then I started doing it more and then, you know, that's, uh, I mean, that, that's the process, at least in my head, how that worked. Mm. And do you feel like the kind of like the spices and the flavors of Southern cuisine lend themselves well to kind of experimenting, um, oh, e- even I mean, that, unintentionally? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, yes, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, any cuisine, Indian cuisine or Southern cuisine, I mean, it's 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 evolving. It's you know, uh, just you know, it, it it changes with with new people as they come in and they add things. And so, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, you know different groups that come in and add add uh, flavors and add their styles. And then you know that's how things evolve. So I, I think this is just an, a natural process. Yeah, and John, what did, uh, like, when you kind of got started, you um, started cooking on a tugboat and kind of worked your way up through restaurants. What were some of the the things that you first, you know, kind of gravitated towards within Southern Cuisine and started experimenting with? Well, uh, I mean, that's, that's so unbelievably long ago. You know, my, 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 my real, you know, I'd say my, uh, sort of real journey began, you know, not as much on the tugboat. The, the tugboat I got thrown into the, um, after I graduated uh, my senior year of high school before I went off to college. And when I arrived to my my first hitch on the boat in South Louisiana, the you know the the captain just sort of you know sort of grabbed me by the shoulder and said, "Congratulations, you're the cook." And uh, and I just wasn't given any choice about it. I was the low man on the totem pole, the newest guy on the boat, and that guy also got to take on the cooking duties. And so. Um, you know, that was sort of a sink or swim deal. And so I just enjoyed it. You know, I was cooking for 10 Cajuns and, you know, three meals a day. And I didn't really have any idea what I was doing. And, you know, I'd been given a copy of The Joy of Cooking and said, you know, here's your roadmap. And, you know, you need to, to figure out what to do. And so I liked it. And then, you know, when I went off to college, you know, it just, it made sense when, you know, I needed some extra money. Um, you know, I'd grab it job at the, you know, a cafe or a sandwich shop and, you know, and just work just, you know, to, to make some money for, you know, a semester or so. Um, but it was when I, uh, and I started off school in Virginia and I ended up sort of dumping and, uh, and, and going down to Chapel Hill because I always wanted to go to, to ultimately go to UNC and I figured I could sneak in the back door. Hmm. And, um, when I got there, my parents did not see that decision the same way I did, and so I was, you know, sort of left to my own financial devices. And so, you know, to get uh, to get work, and it just happened that a bunch of friends of mine were working in a restaurant called Crook's Corner at the time, and you know, they said, "Come on in, you know, we'll get you a job." And so I started washing dishes at Crook's, and you know, that I, I couldn't sit still, and so when I they didn't serve lunch. And I was the daytime dishwasher, just keeping up with the prep cook's dishes. Um, when uh, when I whenever I'd get a break, I'd just immediately you know pick up a knife and you know do what I could to help the prep cooks. And um, at the at the time, I mean, sort of unbeknownst to me, you know, Crook's Corner was the epicenter for um, 
the sort of legitimization of you know of Southern food. Bill Neal had been recognized by Craig Claiborne, you know, a couple of years before I started, you know, as a guy who was doing something very significant in the South, um, and that you know New Yorkers needed to pay attention to this restaurant. And um, <clears throat> so you know, I was exposed for the first time to um, you know a well, you know what. You know, there, there's this sort of gross misconception about what Southern food is to, to a lot of folks. You know, they think it's just sort of Paula Dean, everything's fried, and everything's cooked in, you know, in pork fat and, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, and that's really not what Southern food is. I mean, there's a certain, you know, the, the, the common thread that runs through, you know, what people conceive of Southern food is the only thing that, you know, is sort of universal in the South, which is sort of the soul food, which is, very much the dishes that were, um, you know, transposed on on this part of our country from Western Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, even the ingredients, you know, that are not indigenous to you know to this country, um, you know, are the things that are a staple of the American sort of soul food canon. But you know, Southern food, you know, as a whole, is really this patchwork of different cuisines all over the South. And so, Bill was working in sort of low country South Carolina cuisine, and. You know, so one of the things that you know that that I really latched on to at first was being from New Orleans. You know, we ate red beans and rice every Monday. It's just a Monday dish in New Orleans. Um, I fell in love with Hoppin' John, um, and that was one of Bill's favorite things to cook, and one of the best things on the menu, which is just rice and black-eyed peas, um, you know, with bacon, and um, you know, and seeing that there were different ways to um, sort of manipulate that dish. You know, instead of serving it hot, um, you could serve it chilled with a bit of bread and, you know, and fresh tomato. And all of a sudden you had all the same elements, but, you know, they were, you know, sort of stacked differently. Um, And, you know, and it it created a new dish, you know, with a very clear reference to the original. And so, you know, Hoppin' John was, uh, you know, something that I remember, you know, very early on. Bill Neal was the first person that I ever knew in a restaurant that was selling pimento cheese. Um, and, and it was exquisite, you know, and, you know, Bill sort of, you know, loved to sort of, you know, sort of espouse the, you know, the virtue, you know, of, you know, 35 years ago, you know, making your own mayonnaise and, you know, and he loved to teach the guys that work for him, you know, sort of what the significance of these things. And, you know, you taste things side by side to, you know, get the full experience of what the difference was. And so we, you know, would taste fresh-made mayonnaise, uh, you know, out of the Roboku, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, even a jar of Dukes, um, you know, which is the Cadillac of mayonnaise. Mm. Um, and, you know, and sort of examine what the, you know, what made, you know, uh, made from scratch um, so much more significantly different than, you know, the best product on the market. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, do you think that approach to just really appreciating more intricate, vibrant flavors that are also fresher, like that kind of speaks to what you've done um, and, you know, resisting just very trendy and one-note kind of bacon everything um, foods and really trying to tease out and, and celebrate, like, the the more um, nuanced, like, flavors within Southern food? Um, I mean, I think so. I mean, it's certainly informed, you know, what, uh, you know what I would do going forward. Um, you know, it would. It, it took me, you know, probably, 
a decade or a decade and a half to really truly understand. It was a decade, um, you know, the, the significance of what I had learned while I was in Bill's kitchen. Um, and, you know, while, you know, today, you know, we've gotten so deep into exploring food as, uh, as chefs and as, uh, you know, as, 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 as patrons of, you know, of restaurants, um, you know, the things that 25 years ago, you would never think of like making your own hot sauce. I mean, I remember talking to Sean Brock when we first got to be friends about the fact that we were making our own mustard, and he was like, you're doing what? I was like, yeah, you make your own mustard. He's like, never thought about it in my life. And, you know, and that's, you know, a decade and a half ago that these things are so commonplace now that, I mean, mm-hmm. you wouldn't think otherwise. I mean, we, we, you know, we've explored, you know, sort of everything that there is exhaustively. We can make everything in our own kitchens now. And, you know, and, and you know, make it, you know, arguably, um, you know, as good or better as, you know, as anything you could dream that was processed. But at the same time, you know, there are certain things that, you know, that there's absolutely no replacement for. You know, if, if you're going to eat a fried bologna sandwich, uh, you know, you need French's yellow mustard on it, period. <laughs> Nothing will, you know, at times replace French's yellow mustard. Um, and, you know, and as hard as we've tried to duplicate it and we make a really nice yellow mustard, it's not French's, you know, or that store-bought. Um, you know, we, we talk, like, one of the things I know my guys get sick of listening to me talk about is, you know, is like, um, on hamburgers. Uh, you know, I tell them all the time, quit screwing around, you know, with your fancy pickles. For a hamburger, you need the cheapest, sourest dill pickle that you can buy in a jar out there. It's the only. It's the only thing you want to eat on a hamburger. It doesn't make any sense to go fancy on, you know, on pickles. It's just a total waste, and it changes the landscape of the hamburger altogether. Um, and uh, you know, so you know, while we have explored all this stuff, it really is nice to sort of, you know, to, to every once in a while flip back and go, you know what? Um, I've eaten a lot of good fried chicken in my life, but if I'm given the opportunity to eat it, um, you know, pretty much every time I want to pick Popeyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, 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 and I, and I like it for the shock factor, you know, as much as anything else is people like look at you and go, um, wait, so you do what you do yet still think that Popeye's fried chicken is as good as any fried chicken. I'm right. It is. And what do you think it is about like the, you know, the cheap pickle or Popeye's like, is it just, um, like more nostalgic flavors? Like what is it for you that kind of brings um, you back? You know, it may be the transportiveness of it. Um, you know, I, I just, you know, with, with yellow mustard, I just think that, you know, that's, it's, it's something that is just, um, you know, it's so elemental um, and it works so well on so many levels that, uh, you know, I, it's just, I, I think it's just, you know, the only way to say it is it just is. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it's just, it's difficult to, to, to really sort of like grind any more out of it than that. It's, you know, it's just like, it just works better for some reason. And somebody figured that out a long time ago. Yeah. There's kind of a beauty in the agency to create and to experiment with your own thing, but also the, the doing something repetitively and kind of standardized over so many years you do create and, or you achieve something that um, is hard to by any other means. Sure. Absolutely. 
Um, so we're going to go for a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back um, on Food Without Borders. Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Welcome back to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host this evening, Leah Kurtz, and we're just chatting over the phone with chefs John Currents and Vish Bhatt. And we've covered the, uh, the food and identity, but let's talk a little bit politics, gentlemen. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, I mean... What's the rating on this show, just out of curiosity? The rating on this show? Oh, I have no idea. PG. <laughs> oh, you can you can drop the F bomb. It's totally fine. Oh. <laughs> you can. I will tell you, I get very passionate. Yes, you can. You can let loose. It's okay. There's no censor. There's no censor- censorship here. No worries. Um, so yeah. So I mean, kind of the elephant in every room, um, especially when we're talking about food. Actually, is um, you know, kind of uh, an already intense political climate that definitely has shifted into high gear since last November um, and, you know, taking issues that already existed and just exacerbating them, um, you know, a thousand times over. How how has the way that you, each of you, participate um, as chefs, um, as, you know, leaders in the food world, running businesses, um, you know, and, and in a time where it seems like our political identities are, we're wearing them more on the edge of our sleeves and it's their conversations we're, you know, having maybe more frequently than we did before. Like how, how has, you know, the Trump administration shaped that um, for either of you or each of you? I mean, I, 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 th- I think I can speak for both of us when I say, you know, that you know the, the the one of the sadder things you know about this is that you know the irony that um, you know what has happened in the last year is really you know sort of challenging the welcome table um, in a, a greater way than we probably ever dreamed of and you know where you know I, I really feel like you know food is and the, and the table is is a place where you know we can come t- together. Um, you know, for conversation and discussion um, and understanding one another that, you know, it just feels with each passing day that, you know, the divide is growing, you know, to you know, a, a point of, 
you know, irreparableness. Um, and, you know, and that to me is, you know, is, is sort of extraordinarily hurtful. I mean, and it's, you know, as much as, you know, we hear about how great the economy is doing, um, you know, this is a, this is a very scary time in our industry. Um, you know, we've, we've seen, we've seen, uh, sales, um, you know, across the board nationally, um, fall off during the lunch, uh, lunch hour, um, for the first time in the history of, of, uh, you know, of tracking these numbers in some of the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and, you know, and that, that signals, you know, something that, uh, you know, is, is very worrisome. You know, how do we survive? You know, we have, you know, watched a country that restaurants exploded on the landscape, um, because, you know, people got less and less and less and less willing to cook at home. And, you know, cooking has become sort of this onerous chore. Um, and now there seems to be sort of this shaken confidence that has not, you know, let up since last November. And, you know, we're seeing the effects of it in, you know, people quite literally staying home. Um, and so I, I know we're, we're sort of gone sideways and, and I think you should chime in here because you know, I tend to be the loud mouth and <laughs> you are very reserved, but also one of the smartest people that I know. Um, and, and I know you like at times have to be dying to get on the roof and scream. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and yes, yeah, so so for the first time, you know, I, I, as an immigrant, um, I feel uncomfortable in this country. Uh, you know, and I, I, I came here, Reagan was president, and I was not a big Reagan fan and um, was very active in, in college politics, and, you know, leftist politics, and, you know, walking up and down campus, you know, with, with placards, uh, denouncing the Iran-Contra thing and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I did not, you know, I, I felt that if, you know, I, that if, you know, that this was okay to do, that there wasn't somebody watching me or somebody that was going to, you know, uh, do something that would be harmful, that we could have a dialogue. And that is gone. There's, there is no dialogue anymore, unfortunately. Uh, so that's that's an, you know on, on a personal uh, level, but then I also feel very strongly that you know the one place that is left uh, where if there were if there was a place where we could restart the dialogue and bring people together, it is food. It is a it is a a table where you know that is still something we have in common. Uh, so you know, that's that's where I am on this. I mean, I, this is you know. To see what is happening in this country and, and to know that the person who should be putting everything in order, the person you know, we can look to for leadership, is not at all a leader, and he's actually the one stirring the pot to make this mess, uh, is, is very disheartening and, and uh, worrisome. Yeah, and how, how would you say the, the activism of your youth um, has shifted to, you know, as now like a chef and you're running a business. Um, how, how, how do you do activism now? I mean, by, by well, constantly talking to people, I mean, to younger folks, you know, asking them to read, asking them not to believe everything they see on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, you know, saying have a discussion. You know, that the idea is, uh, and, and express your opinions. 
but be willing to listen to others' opinions as well. I mean, that's you know that's the hard part uh, for for a lot of younger folks is like you know because when we were young uh, and I was having this this chat with uh, my wife just yesterday, we were sitting somewhere. Like when I was in college, we had a Hillel group and we had a uh, you know a college Palestinian group and. Uh, this is when the Intifada had happened and all the stuff was happening, and you know. But they were able to get together on campus and, and have a talk together. And, you know, the, so there's still, you know, I mean, this is possible to do. But it's only possible if you're actually willing. You, you may not agree with what anybody else has to say, but, you know, you should be able to listen to what they have to say and let them make a point and then make your point. Uh, but, you know, that, that has to happen. We're, we're not, right now, everybody's just, you know, closing off and, and yelling and screaming. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not the way, I don't, I don't think that's the way forward. Yeah. And it's, and it's not. And this is why, you know, I said Vish is the smart one here. You know, I, I, on the other hand, you know, am it's very angry, big mouth. And <laughs> Are you part shouting? of my anger stems from the fact that you know, I, I studied um, political science, at a liberal arts school in Virginia, uh, you know, 35 years ago, um, where you know we we spent years studying the uh, Greek philosophers and and um, you know the origins of democracy, and then you know before we even touched um, uh, American politics, and even then, you know, majority of what we studied was the founding fathers. I mean, we read every one of the Federalist Papers. So, you know, I can sit here um, and, you know, and, and can quote through, you know, the founding fathers who were men of incredible virtue and dignity that, you know, I, I know deeply what their intent was when they wrote the Constitution 200 and, you know, almost 50 years ago. Um, and we've are now completely manipulating, you know, that document. It's being, you know, shredded, arguably, uh, here and there. Um, and, you know, and have a, uh, you know, a man that, that sits on Pennsylvania Avenue that will leave the office of president devoid of any dignity whatsoever. And, you know, and I feel, you know, I feel very, you know, sort of uh, unsettled by the fact that, you know, we no longer, you know, measure men and women by, you know, the virtues that they aspire to. We've traded, you know, virtues for, um, you know, uh, uh, societal values. And, you know, virtues are an, are an internal aspiration, you know, that, that you take on yourself. You aspire to be an honorable person. You know, morality is, is, is imposed on you, you know, or, or, or values are imposed on you from the outside. Um, and you're just sort of told that this is, you know, this is, this is what the moral code is. This is what you ought to do. Um, and, you know, and that there, there isn't a single virtue, you know, in, you know, the, the guy living in the White House now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what worries me more than anything else is, you know, do we come back from this? You know, or have we now lowered the bar to where it'll never be raised again? And that, to me, is, is you know is terrifying. And as we watch this, you know, uh, you know, sort of this very important moment in our history where you know sexual harassment is being addressed, 
in a very open way. And, you know, people are daily being taken out at the knees for, you know, their the sins in their past, um, that it's being politicized, um, you know, as a Republican versus Democrat, you know, sort of uh, issue. And it's a societal issue. And, you know, and, 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 and Trump is using it as a tool, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, the, 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 the dignity and the solemnity that, you know, this issue deserves uh, right now. And, you know, I, I just, it, it personally makes me sick um, because I don't know, you know, what sort of world now I will be leaving you know, my four-year-old to. Um, you know, when, when I'm gone. And, and that scares me. And all I can do is hope and pray that I can be a good enough parent and instill, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the lessons in her that will help her be, you know, the citizen, you know, that the world needs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, the one, I guess, positive, it seems, is because everything has been intensified, um, and things that have existed like sexual harassment and transphobia and homophobia and anti-immigrant sentiments um, that have existed but have been kind of amplified, we see this kind of great reaction from um, perhaps not just the left but but definitely in progressive circles of banding together and using whatever platform they have as, um, you know, places to speak out, um, places to provide support for people that are being threatened from, you know, the White House and, you know, its Twitter feed to, you know, legislation. Have you, either of you, found ways um, within the restaurant industry with with your respective um, platforms to kind of provide representation or provide support, like ways, just avenues you found kind of in this everyday local activism that we've found ourselves like really having to step in, step up and um, engage in. No, I, I mean, I tend to, you know, I tend to traffic in the, uh, you know, in the echo chamber of, uh, of social media. <laughs> um, you know, when I, I know, you know, full well that, you know, everybody who doesn't agree with me has, you know, has probably, you know, deleted me from, from their account. And so that, you know, all I'm, you know, doing, you know, in social media is, preaching to the choir, you know, and, uh, you know, Fish is, is absolutely right. The only thing that we can do, and, you know, in our circle of friend, um, almost to a man, everybody is like-minded. You know, I've, I've identified a person or, or two, you know, within my circle of friends that, you know, really surprised me because they, uh, they, they, they voted um, Republican in this, this last election. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the reasoning for those votes, you know, varies, um, you know, but, and you can't change that. And we're, and we're, we're not changing anybody's opinion now, um, you know, about, you know, whether they voted for Donald Trump or not. I mean, I mean, the, the folks who voted for Donald Trump, that it seemed to be locking harder and harder and harder into the conviction that what they did was right. And so that you know, you, we can't get out there and try to change someone's mind. You know, what, what we have to do is try to, um, you know, find folks that are willing to listen and, um, you know, and engage in dialogue, um, you know, and, you know, begin the healing by listening to one another. 
Um, and, you know, and that's just why I, I admire Vish as much as I do for, you know, being able to, you know, to encapsulate that so, so easily. And, you know, the fact that, you know, he encourages that in his kitchen. Yeah, Vish, can you talk a little bit about kind of how your politics get translated into the kitchen as far as, you know, representation um, of minorities or women or um, the LGBTQ community or just kind of the work ethic and the work environment that you foster? Uh, well, you know, I wish our kitchen was more diverse than it is. I mean, it, it would definitely be more helpful. Uh, I mean, I'm not, doesn't mean it's not diverse. I mean, but it's just, you know, we need more voices, uh, not just in the kitchen, but uh, you know, in other places, other places of work as well. Um, but I mean, my, you know, Look, I mean, the thing is, the reason I am where I am is because you know, I came here from India with, you know, a, a different background, a different philosophy, different set of, you know, political values, uh, and I was given a chance to express them and uh, and still do my job. And, you know, it, it was perfectly normal uh, and, and okay and accepted in, in the kitchens I worked for, you know, for John to, to say what I, you know, felt and... and you know, if I didn't like something, I would say, "Hey, I don't like that." Or if you know, if I agreed with somebody, I could say that as well. And so that's you know, we could have those talks, and that's how I came up in kitchens. Uh, and so I think that's how it should be, uh, as long as we're not personally insulting each other. Uh, as long as it's a healthy dialogue, I think it should continue. Um, and that's how we learn. I mean, that's you know, you, you learn about somebody, and you learn about something different. Only if uh, you're allowed to, to talk to them or allowed to ask questions, uh, and sometimes those questions are, you know, uh, not the best questions to ask. But you don't learn that unless you actually ask the question. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, sometimes, uh, I mean, you almost. I mean, this is. It maybe won't sound right, but sometimes you almost have to offend somebody to to know that hey, that behavior offends them. And then, then it's up to you to change that behavior. Because if you don't, then, then you're just a douche. <laughs> uh, and then you have no place uh, in, in our environment. Uh, but, I mean, that's, you know, that's, you have to, to be able to, to communicate. You have to be able to have a dialogue. You have to be able to, uh, you know, be given a free reign to an extent where, you know, you can, you can learn where, where the boundaries are if, if you don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then respect them once, once you learn what they are. Yeah, absolutely. That's important to create those spaces of respect and, uh, and, and just listening, which is definitely uh, not, always, not always easy. It takes time. Um, so as we kind of uh, wrap up, um, for our listeners um, who maybe want to stay in touch with the work that um, both of you are doing, um, whether you're traveling around at all or doing pop-ups or just the, the great work that you're doing in your restaurants, um, what's the best way to kind of stay on top of that and find out how, how to get involved with uh, either, you know, visiting and tasting or, um, you know, virtually uh, following any, any rants or, <laughs> or just beautiful food? Um. Well, we're we're both on Facebook and uh, <clears throat> both on uh, on Twitter. Uh, Vish is the best Twitter handle um, on the planet, uh, which is at uh, Kiss My Bot. Um, 
And I am on uh, uh, Twitter as um, uh, Big Bad Chef. Um, uh, our website is uh, citygroceryonline.com. Um, and then our foundation website, Move On Up Mississippi, um, is at uh, moveonupmississippi.com. Um, and we, uh, we will be announcing our third annual um, Light in April uh, fundraiser, uh, which is a weekend-long fundraiser for the foundation. Um, we are, uh, our foundation is uh, funds, programming, and initiatives um, in the state of Mississippi to um, help with uh, childhood health and well-being. Mississippi has the, the worst uh, rate of childhood obesity uh, in the country. Uh, we are the most highly illiterate state in the country, um, and so we are seeking out uh, programs that will, uh, you know, help benefit children. Um, we are currently trying to organize um, an initiative within a, a group called the Interfaith Compassion Ministries that will <clears throat> help offset the cost of childcare for single working mothers. Um, I, I just, you know, when when I see, you know, how um, you know, how hard the guys in our kitchens, you know, struggle working, you know, to a man, almost every one of them, two jobs, you know, just uh, just to pay their bills. Um, you know, I, I am particularly empathetic as a father, you know, to, um, you know, women who I know what the cost of child care is. And, you know, if they're having to pay for a child um, to be taken care of while they're at work during the day um, and then working a second job, um, you know, so that, they can actually make some money, um, you know, for you know, another six or seven or eight hours um, in a day. It's 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 it just crushes me. So um, that's that's our current. But we we are we're reforming our, our foundation uh, fundraising event. Something's going to be enormously exciting um, that uh, we should be announcing in the next week or so. And move on up Mississippi.com. Okay, great. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. And again, chefs, thank you both um, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your stories and your insight. Um, and for our listeners, you can find this episode and previous episodes online at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, please tune in every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Um, for Food Without Borders, and have a great evening. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, dear. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.